God speaks to us in his word in Matthew 1, 1 through 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. All right. Well, you guys are welcome for a uh, genealogy on the, uh, the Sunday before Christmas. Just invigorating. Thrilling story we just read. Uh, hey, if you're new to us, um, we're preaching through um, Advent. So let me explain real quick what Advent is. Advent are the weeks of Christmas and leading up to Christmas. Christmas is coming this coming week. We celebrate the craziest, the craziest thing that's ever happened in the history of crazy things. God becoming man. That's what Christmas is. And Advent is all of the weeks involving Christmas and leading up to Christmas. And the reason that we celebrate Advent is because throughout the Old Testament and throughout really the New Testament as well, but just the history of God's people they had to become really acquainted with patience and waiting. We have no grid for waiting and patience right now. We don't have a grid for it, man. We like microwaves. We like to microwave hot pockets. I've never had one of those, but some of y'all are saying amen. But we don't just microwave hot pockets. We like to microwave our paycheck. We like to microwave our careers. We like to microwave relationships healthy marriages. We want it all right now, right away, in a matter of seconds. Some of us struggle to wait 40 minutes. Can you remember the last time you had to wait 40 minutes? How many of you are able to stay on hold for 40 minutes? <laughs> One person raising their hand. That's a, I, am, I am blessed by that. That's a, patience is a virtue. I can't do it. How many of us would... Wait in a drive-thru for 40 minutes. If you've ever been to the Popeyes here, man, you know, straight up, that's at least, that's at least what you're going to get. Well, I hope there's no general managers of the Popeyes in this room. I love Popeyes. Anyway, um, we struggle to wait 40 minutes, man. Um, waiting is a biblical thing, though. We want right now, right away, and we'll compromise the right thing to get the quick thing. That's what we do. I do it, you do it. And the reason we celebrate Advent, and we call it Advent, is a period of waiting. And it was the, four, the 400 years of God's people where God did not speak to them through a prophet. In the Old Testament, God spoke through prophets, through people, and they would say things to the people of God. And that's how they knew what they should do or God would continually speak. He even spoke in an audible voice to them. And now, 
God's people are used to his voice, used to prophets, and then you get 400 years of silence before Jesus came. So what's happened now is nothing for 400 years, and then John the Baptist comes and announces Jesus. That's the four weeks of Advent, and they're themed. The first is hope. The second week was peace. Last week, the third week, was the theme of joy. And then this week is the theme of love. In week one, we covered Genesis 3. We talked about the Garden of Eden and what happened in the Garden of Eden, which most of us know, even culturally speaking, was a serpent came, tempted Adam and Eve. She ate the fruit that she was not supposed to eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She bought into what the Bible calls the lie, which is this lie. You can be God. That's the lie. She bought into that, and because of that, we have a cursed world. A broken sin had not entered the world, and right in that moment, it did. And all sin becomes, comes under the banner of this one lie. You can be God. That's called the fall. So we looked at Genesis 3 in week 1 with the Garden of Eden, Paradise Lost, the tree, the serpent, the woman, and the lie. And we looked at the hope we have in Jesus even out of brokenness, a new Adam. And then in week two, we talked about the story of Exodus, how God's people were under slavery. They were under a yoke of oppression from the Egyptians. You might know the story of Moses. He parted the Red Sea. Well, that's the story of Exodus. Egypt and God's people and Moses, by God's grace, came, was sent by God to come and deliver people. We, the theme out of that was peace. And then last week, Pastor Pat Priests on exile, Jeremiah 29. God's people in the wilderness, they were delivered from slavery. And they were on their way to the promised land, but they weren't there yet. They had been delivered by the deliverer, and they were in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, but they weren't quite there yet. That's the story of us. Jesus has delivered us, and we're on the way, but we're not quite there yet. We know that there's already happened what Jesus has done, and then the not yet is he will come again to restore all things. That was the theme of joy, and now the final week is the grand finale of all these weeks of Advent. The grand finale is a genealogy. Cue the confetti. Matthew's gospel is one of four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible. There are four gospels. That word means good news. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the first of four, and it tells the story of Jesus' life. And the way Matthew starts is with who his great, 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 great grandparents are. It's bizarre. Does it make a whole lot of sense for Matthew to start that way? I mean, if you've got God in the flesh, don't you think you would stand up and give some good advice based on that? That's what everybody wants, right? We want advice. We don't, we don't deal well with announcements or news. This genealogy that Matthew starts with, is, it's kind of off. It's kind of weird. Why in the world would he put it in there? There's several reasons. I mean, one, Matthew is a logical person. Matthew spends most of his time going through logic. 
to tell you, give you all the clues as to why this is very real. This is Jesus really was born. He really did die and he really did rise again. And to announce who he came from would have given you logic, rationale. It's practical. It's an announcement. No doubt something that happened. But why in the world this particular genealogy? In biblical times, genealogies mattered a lot. They're not like us. We don't, nobody's just sitting around like can't wait to read 1 Chronicles 1 through 9. It's nine chapters of just genealogies. Nobody's like just can't wait to get their hands on that. I mean, maybe there's one or two in here, but kind of weird. Genealogy is not something that we love, love to read. It's not quite as gripping as we want, not a page turner. But in 1 Chronicles 1 through 9, in Matthew 1, 1 through 6, just like all of Scripture, God wrote it. So it matters. And just like all of Scripture, it's about Jesus. Even the genealogies in 1 Chronicles, first nine chapters, and Matthew 1, 1 through 6, is ultimately to reveal to us who Jesus is. We don't get this concept of lineage anymore. Nobody's like, nobody's introducing themselves as, I am Ben, son of Philip. Nobody does that. Most people don't even know that I have a dad. Ain't that interesting? If you were to announce someone in this day, you would have announced who begot who begot who begot who to get to that place. That was part of their identity. They would have been known, their reputation, their character would have been built upon where they came from. So your lineage really mattered. Now it's maybe just a hobby for a few select people to look at, see who your ancestors are. But in this day, this is your resume. It's your reputation. It's your character. Where you came from, who you came from, really mattered. It was a vote of confidence. I, uh, I grew up in a uh, everybody knows this, but I grew up in a small town in Louisiana. I talk about it a lot because it was a very, it was a strange, weird town. 2,000 people, tops. And um, I had a grandpa, um, didn't really have a dad around. And um, had, uh, most of the influences in my life were coaches, you know, playing baseball and other sports. Except for my grandpa. My grandpa was a major factor. And this dude was, he was larger than life. He was, he was very strong. He never said anything that was, he never said anything weird at all. He just was always like measured his words. He didn't talk a ton, but he was also kind of the life of the party, you know? And at the same time he was that, he was very compassionate. My grandpa, he just was, man, he was epic. Purple Heart in World War II. Um, worked for the Army Corps of Engineers as a land surveyor for years. And uh, very much one of those guys that was like, he was given over to his ethics, his code of ethics and virtue. And what nobody in no way gonna waver him from that. I loved him. His name was John Wesley Smith. Name fits the guy. 
I remember on Saturdays, once or twice a month, my grandpa would take me, little, little Ben, and uh, hard to imagine me being little, I know, but he would take little Ben, and there were two places we'd go. There's Pippin's Cafe, which was amazing. I still remember it as um, like Michelin-starred breakfast, you know, just like the best restaurant in the world that eventually got shut down for, you know, health code violations. <laughs> Pippin's Cafe was so good. And then right next door to it was Smokey's Barbershop, a guy named Smokey. And uh, I remember it being the best haircut of all time. I don't, I'm sure that he probably never went to school. You know, nobody didn't have no kind of license or nothing. There's no telling what kind of like bacteria, you know, got into my head because of him not cleaning combs. Who knows? My grandpa would take me by the hand and we'd walk down to Pippin's Cafe, we'd eat breakfast with a bunch of old men that were in World War II veterans that I called uncle. And then we would go next door to Smokey's and I'd get my hair cut. And I just remember, I'll never forget the moment, that, that, that feeling of those moments for me. And people didn't even know my name. They just would call me John Wesley Smith's boy. And I kind of, to this day, I'm like, man, I wish I was known as John Wesley Smith's boy. He was a mountain of a man. Everybody revered him in the town. Um, I looked to him to kind of build, you know, my masculinity as well because I love his grace and strength. Most of us have lost our identity in lineage. I say that to say, for me, that was an identifier. And if you look at your life, you wouldn't know that story about me. You would never think to ask or care if I wasn't preaching to you today. And you didn't have to listen. In Jesus' day, it mattered who you came from and where you came from. So we're going to read this again because I want us to pay attention to some of these names and we're going to hear their story today. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. There's two times now, for some reason, we've mentioned the mothers of these kids. Zerah by Tamar and now Boaz by Rahab. Kind of interesting. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And listen to this. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Very weird for a book of genealogy to mention mothers, women at all. It just wasn't a thing. It was always Who's your father? Which sons do you have? It was some weird kind of patriarchy back in that day. So for Matthew to mention four women is extraordinary. It tells you about God's character. It tells you about God's plan, the way that he designed women equal to men in his image. But it also tells us something else. There's lots of women that he could, he could have mentioned. Rebecca, uh, Rachel, plenty. 
of other women that were incredible women. But he mentions specifically these four women. And the other interesting fact is all four of them were surrounded by morally questionable circumstances. And they themselves were morally questionable. Why these four? Why in the world wouldn't you pick a squeaky clean lineage? It's the son of God. He's got to be perfect. He's not going to sin. Why these four? Who are these women? If Matthew is writing a book about the story of Jesus, then it really does matter what's on every page including his genealogy. So let's take a look at these four women. First off is this, Tamar's mentioned. Tamar, go all the way back to Genesis 38. She married a man named Ur, E-R. He died, tragic. Here's what's even more tragic. In that day, if you were a widow, you were culturally unaccepted. You couldn't get anything. You couldn't get any sort of help. Socially, you were not accepted if you were a widow. But the law says this, that whoever your husband was that died, you are to marry his brother or one of his brothers. So Ur's brother was supposed to marry her to keep her from being disregarded societally. She married Ur's second brother, Onan. He died. It's not going well. Tamar's father-in-law, Judah, refused to give her his third son. No one can blame him at this point. So Tamar, in order to spare a life of shame, she tricks her father-in-law. Track with me, this is a real story. She tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her, and she becomes pregnant with twins. Talk about a dysfunctional family. Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her, gets pregnant with twins, is mentioned as one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of the living God. Let's move on. Maybe it gets better. Rahab, mentioned next. Rahab comes out of the book of Joshua. Rahab was a prostitute. The Bible calls her a harlot. That means she was a sex worker. Rahab is an amazing woman, to be honest. She helped spies from Israel escape to safety. It's a crazy story. Maybe it gets better from there, because it's, let's go to Ruth. Ruth, Genesis 19. Incredible woman, truly. A hero of the faith. Ruth was amazing. But she was a Moabite. Moabites were descendants of incest, and they were considered gross, unclean, so gross, so unclean, in fact, that they couldn't even enter a temple or a tabernacle. Ruth was King David's great-grandmother, and in the top of the lineage of Jesus. And finally, one of the most fascinating to me most telling sentences in the Bible, in 1.6, David was the father of Solomon, 
by the wife of Uriah. By the wife of Uriah. Notice what Matthew does here. He doesn't mention her name. Her name was Bathsheba. But he makes sure that you know that Solomon was born and is a part of the lineage of Jesus was born by, as, by the wife of a man named Uriah. What happened with him? David was king. This is out of 2 Samuel. David was king. Everybody loved David. David uses his power and authority to overtake Bathsheba. Read into that how you will. It is what it is. That is the truth. He uses his power to take her. She becomes pregnant. Her husband is a man named Uriah, one of David's closest companions and one of the men that he trusted to lead his armies. David freaks out. He uses his power again to put her husband, his friend, his captain on the front line so that he will surely die. King David has now used his power to overtake a woman and to murder her husband. Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. This is the lineage of the king of kings. Can you imagine Bathsheba's despair? Can you imagine the shame? Her husband dead at the hands of the man that she trusted. If you read into anything at all, which we really never should, but Uriah was so loyal to David, ready to do whatever he wanted. That, that's the mark of a really good man. I, I would assume that he was a good husband and father. I mean, it's just practically speaking, it's, they would have known each other, you know? Imagine the shame and despair that she felt. Victimized by her husband's friend. Her husband murdered by him and then pregnant with his children. Why mention these women? This is not a great track record. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. The answer is this. Listen to me. Christmas is about God coming to earth. Matthew is trying to tell us, he's trying to show us that God comes to us. He comes to you and he comes to me. He comes to actual you and actual me. Not the most ideal version of ourselves, not the better version of ourselves. He comes to who you actually are. The nasty, broken, dirty, crazy, manipulative, you name it, that person that you actually are, that I actually am, Jesus comes to us. And the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus is proof that God is not somehow disenchanted with humans. Christmas is about the revelation of God's love for actual humans. And he reveals his love by becoming an actual human in the lineage of actual broken humans. That's good news for us today. There's two things I want you to see real quick. This is 
so obvious to me, but it's so important. He identifies with us, and he identifies with actual us, not our ideal version. Martin Luther said it this way. Oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even put them in his family tree. Now, if the Lord does that here, so ought we to despise no one, but put ourselves right in the middle of the fight for sinners and help them. Jesus' family lineage was not something that was shot from the hip. It was not this fly-by-night kind of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants. He's divine. He's God. He was not created. He is all-knowing and all-powerful. It didn't just happen. It was part of the redemptive story that has been in the works throughout eternity. He knew exactly who he would be born of and born from. There's no question. Harlots, prostitutes, manipulators, murderers, sinners, addicts, all broken people, which is you and me. I just want to make sure we don't get it twisted, man. Sometimes when we talk about the Bible, we talk about it like that's a thing that happened back then to those people or is happening over there, or whoever those people were, or some story somewhere. The Bible is about you and is about me and ultimately is about Jesus becoming us. And if you can get past the, this dream of an ideal version of yourself, if you can get past that and just be honest, man, we, church should be the most honest place in the world. Let's be honest. If you can just be honest for a minute, the fact that Jesus' lineage looked like that is really good news for you. And it's really good news for me. Jesus identifies with us even though we're a mess. He's not ashamed of you. He's not. He's not shocked by you. Not surprised. He's not waiting on you to become a better version of yourself. He's not. He knows you. He knows every part of you. Hebrews 2.11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He identifies with us. The second is this. He offers us a new identity. He offers us a new identity. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, without Jesus, they will forever and eternally be known as manipulator, harlot, and victim. But because Jesus was born, those women are now known as the great-grandparents of the Most High God. Because Jesus was born, they are now known as part of the family of God. He identifies with us, and then he gives us a new identity. Just him being born changes literally everything. It changes your identity. Great-grandmothers of Emmanuel. It's the same for you and I. Apart from Jesus, we are only in just our broken identity, but... With Jesus, he comes and he doesn't just make us a better version of ourselves. He doesn't self-actualize. Who wants that? Be honest with me. Who wants that? Who's like, are we that arrogant to think like if somebody can just make me a better version of me, then surely I'll have a glorified body and I'll be totally perfect. No, we know what we need. We need to be different than we are. 
I need to be like a whole different kind of dude. Who I am doesn't work. It doesn't work. I need to be, I need to be not me. <laughs> I need to become a whole different kind of me. And I don't, I'm not trying to just like be a better type of human. I'm not trying to like be a better do-gooder. That doesn't work. I tried that and I still go back to the same old stuff. I need to become a new kind of thing. A new creation. I need to be recreated. The heart that I have needs to be replaced. Because this one doesn't beat the heart of stone. It's, it's dead. But I need somebody to come in and put a real heart in me. I need to think differently. My mind needs to be transformed. I need to even figure out how to do the fruit of the Spirit. Like I need to be a different kind of dude. And here's what happened. When you are saved, the Bible says that is exactly what happens. You become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. He offers us a new identity for Rahab, for Tamar, for Bathsheba. They needed it. Believe me, I need it and you need it too. This is the goodness of God. God changes literally everything. He changes the fabric of who we are. Our heart is different. Our cells are different. He makes us a new creation. Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. New creations in the already and not yet. There will be a day when Jesus returns to make all things new. In that moment, you will be fully who he's already stamped you to be now. Glorified body, no more sin, no more shame, no more tears. But in this moment today, we live in the waiting and we work towards it and we set our mind on things above and we do like Paul said in Romans 7, who will free me from this body of death? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are freed from the law of sin and death. Set your mind on the Spirit. He identifies with us. I mean, this is amazing. He identifies with us. And then he also gives us a new identity. That's the gospel. That's what Christmas is. God becoming flesh. We're about to take communion. And there's a lot of you in the room. We take it every single week. If you're new to it, there's a lot of us in the room that are super familiar with church, man. We're even maybe super familiar with this church. We're super familiar with Advent or the stories or whatever, but our hearts feel far from being connected with it. And I want to invite you today. Put your heart out there. Say, God, here's my heart. I want to, I want to know you. I want to, I want to know you in the power of of the incarnation and the power of your resurrection. Help me, Lord. And maybe, maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. You, maybe you never have. Maybe your identity is in like all kinds of everything else. But it all comes back to this. If you follow Jesus, it will always come back to your identity 
being found in him. Are you married? Your marriage is about Jesus. Are you dating someone? Your dating is about Jesus. Do you have a job? Are you uh, lucky enough in such a tumultuous time to have a career that pays you well? Your paycheck is about Jesus. Are you in school? That's about Jesus too. If you follow Jesus, it's all about him. Do you have family? Are you looking forward to family at Christmas time? That's about Jesus. Are you dreading it? That's also about Jesus. He identifies with us and then gives us a new identity and it all comes back to him. So let's stand up today as we get ready to take the table.